to illustrate the point that people can become sidetracked by things well, that really don't matter. And the problem is getting sidetracked can distract us from the truth or even destroy the truth. And I want you to think for just a moment of the number of churches that perhaps that you've been part of or, or maybe even entire denominations or perhaps family, family and friends you know who were at one time committed to biblical truth, but somewhere along the way they veered off the, the, the straight path of clearly revealed orthodox gospel truth and they got sidetracked on things that don't matter, and before you know it, they were plunged headlong into heresy. And many times, the, the warning signs are there. They veer from the Bible and start dabbling in conjecture or, or speculations. They start denying biblical um, truth, uh, which is uh, that truth that is a bit hard to swallow. And before you know it, they have deserted the faith. It, it can begin with fighting over things that do not matter. And I want to tell you this morning that what we are involved in as followers of Jesus Christ is much too serious to become distracted, which can lead to personal ruin and, and lead to destruction. You see, Paul wrote Timothy his last letter, warning him that persecution was coming. It was time for Timothy to join with Paul to take uh, his own share of suffering and, and, to, and to not be ashamed of Paul or his gospel. Instead, he's been encouraging him to protect it, to preserve it, to, to pass it on unchanged. Uh, attacks, you see, were getting ready to come from without, from without the church. And frankly, I, I have been warning you, not prophetically, I'm not a prophet, but I, I believe that attacks are coming from without in our own culture. And so as they do, as they begin to mount, we must not become distracted. We must not fight each other over things that do not matter. I'll give you an example. Uh, worship wars. The church has been fighting worship wars for a number of years now, fighting about uh, the, the kinds of instruments that we should use or not use um, on the platform, the kinds of songs that we should sing or, or not sing. And I, I, fighting over things that do not ultimately matter. See, you can go to Psalm 150 and find that they used whatever instruments they had available. They used whatever they had available to worship God. And I remember Kim Lee telling me uh, once uh, that, the, 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 and she was a missionary to China, that the house church in China, the house church of China were involved in the worship wars. They were fighting over the kinds of songs to sing and the kinds of instruments to use, they were fighting about it. She said they had no idea what they were fighting about. They just knew that the American church was fighting about it. We must not become distracted over things that do not uh, matter. We must stay singly focused on the gospel and biblical truth. But I want to tell you that there is also the insidious nature of attacks coming from within. Who would have ever thought that the greatest danger to the gospel would come not from those outside the church who want to, who make it their ambition to destroy the faith, but the greatest danger actually comes from within. Those who somehow started right, but somewhere along the way became distracted and destroyed their own faith, and in the process, some of those around them. Again, this is all too serious to be distracted 
which can lead to personal ruin. False teachers had always been a problem in Ephesus. Paul had prophetically forewarned them in Acts chapter 20 of the, of the challenge. Savage wolves, he said, will rise from your own number, not sparing the flock, speaking perverse things. This was, remember Paul's primary purpose in, uh, for writing 1 Timothy? After removing some false teachers from leadership, he left Timothy there um, in Ephesus to set things in order to continue to battle for the faith, the faith that is to be found in the gospel. You remember the last two verses of that first letter that he wrote to Timothy said this, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted you, avoiding what? Worldly and empty chatter, carpet color. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Did you see that? They had strayed into worldly, empty talk, things that didn't matter, and the end result was they ultimately strayed from the faith. Paul expresses, you see, the same concern in our continuing study of 2 Timothy this morning. Our text today actually contains a very familiar verse, a great verse that most of us have memorized, certainly in Awana, but in the context it is infinitely more Important. It, it elevates the supreme importance. Um, this thing keeps hopping down on me. Sorry about that. The supreme importance of gospel truth. And, and, and it keeps us, this verse, if we will f- commit to it, will, f- will keep us from distraction, keep us from straying. It will keep us, frankly, from destruction. So look at the, that verse with me in its context. Second Timothy, in our continuing study, chapter 2, verses 14 and following say this. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as workmen, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and uh, Philetus, men who have gone astray from truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Do you see the contrast that Paul is intentionally setting up here? Don't get sidetracked. Don't become distracted about false and useless arguments, worldly and empty chatter. Instead, be diligent, Timothy, and by application, us. Be diligent. Do your best. Work hard to focus on the word of truth, which is clearly the gospel. Don't forsake the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. And in so doing, you won't be ashamed before God. That, you see, is the emphasis on this passage. It is the word of truth. Don't be sucked in by false teaching. Don't become distracted. Uh, because distraction leads to destruction. Distraction leads to destruction. Here's the outline as we jump into the text. He's going to tell us to avoid fighting about words. And then he's going to tell us to be diligent in the word. And, and then, again, avoid worldly and empty words. And then he'll round out the whole thing with some encouraging words in the very last verse. Beginning with, avoid fighting about words. Paul starts by highlighting the previous section that we looked at last week when he says, remind them of these things. These things refers to what he just said about remembering, well, remembering Jesus and remembering the gospel for which Paul 
found himself in prison. Remember Jesus. Remember that he suffered. And, and if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, the idea is if we endure suffering and we don't desert, we don't deny, then we will reign with him. If we deny him, if we're ashamed of him, he will deny us. Remind them. Actually, the idea is this idea of warning. Warn them of these things. It's in the present tense. Keep on reminding them of these things. I love statements like that uh, in, in the scripture. Keep reminding. Peter uh, says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at it. It says, therefore, I, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though, you are even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, I know, the lay, I know that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my body, I'm about to die. I know it's imminent. I, I'm going to keep telling you these things. I'm going to keep telling you these things until I die. These are important truths. The truth of the word of God and the gospel are of eternal value. We must never forget. We must constantly be reminded because God knows how forgetful we are. Reminded of the story of this small church that called a new pastor. Little church, new pastor, right out of seminary. The first week he preached a marvelous message on unity in the church, the elders in the church. Uh, they, they rejoiced that they called this young man to be pastor, uh, praised his articulate or, or, oration through the week. But they also continued in their bickering that same week. And so the next week, the second Sunday, the pastor stood up and preached exactly the same message. Now, it was a wonderful message, but it was the same message. But the church thinking, well, you know, he is new to ministry. Uh, he just moved. Maybe he didn't have anything else prepared. They didn't say anything. But then the third week uh, uh, came again, and, and the pastor began preaching the exact same message. Frustrated to the point of outburst, someone stood up and hollered, how many times are you going to preach this message? To which the pastor calmly and quietly responded, when you get this one, I'll move on to something else. This is why Paul and, and, and Peter say, keep reminding them of these things. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a tendency to forget. It's why Jesus, by the way, gave us the Lord's Supper. It's why some churches observe communion every week. We do it once a month. Once a week would probably be okay because we have a tendency to, to forget. Keep reminding them of these things. It's why we sing every week songs that often contain words of the gospel. Keep reminding them of these things. If I am ever accused of being redundant, I will just remind you that I'm also being biblical. Now we turn to the main point of this verse, this point where Paul says to avoid wrangling, interesting word, about words. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice the serious nature of this command. Paul says to solemnly charge them before God. The idea is to charge them earnestly before this most solemn witness. Warn them before the omnipresent one, the one who was there as the warning is given and the one who was there should the warning be ignored. 
He's reminding Timothy, and frankly, he's reminding us that God is always present. That observing the command, putting on the Christian you know, garb on Sunday morning is not enough. We are to observe these things whenever God is present, which happens to be all the time. There is a sense in which, listen to me very carefully, there is a sense in which God's presence should be an impetus to obedience. That's what Paul is saying. We do this, for example, in our own child training. In the early years, we encourage our children to obey, and they soon find out that if they don't, uh, mom, dad, we're there um, who observe them and to discipline them for their infractions. Then as they grow older, they experience a couple of those very unique times uh, when mom and dad were not present, but somehow they found out and they were disciplined anyway. Then as they grow older yet, uh, they find out that it was probably brother or sister who tattled on them, or perhaps mom and dad made educated guesses because they can read the look of guilt on children's faces. Now, it is at this point, if we are not careful, that they can begin to hide those looks of guilt. They can begin to not do, violate in front of siblings. You see, somewhere along the way, we need to start making them responsible to a higher authority, author, an authority who is always present. We need to make them answerable, not only to us. Uh, if we do that, then when we aren't there, they will rebel. It is in their nature. We must encourage and command not only our children, but frankly, one another to obedience in light of the presence of God. This is what Paul is doing. The God before whom we will ultimately stand. There is a place. Yes, we want to be people of grace. I get that. I'm not denying the gospel. But we must not obey the responsibility to obey. And there is a place to remember that God is always present. And to to charge you to obedience in light of his omnipresence. I, I've, I, I've, I've shared this with you uh, before. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor um, used by God in the 1700s uh, to be largely responsible for what was, what was called the Great Awakening. We could certainly use uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, today. Uh, we need a Great Awakening in this country. He recorded... Uh, Edwards, some 70 resolutions uh, meant only for himself. He recorded, they were just in his journal, they were just personal for him before he had reached his 20th birthday. These were resolutions, 70 of them, by which he was going to guide his life. A couple deal with this particular issue. Number seven said, resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. If you were going to meet Jesus in about 37 minutes, would you do what you're doing? Number 43, resolve never henceforward till I die to act as if I were any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. God is always present, and he calls that presence to call us to obedience. Look at the specific command, to avoid wrangling about words. To wrangle about words, it speaks of a mere war of words, arguments without sense, arguments about empty and trifling matters. Again, carpet color. Arguments based on speculation for which there is no clear biblical truth. It is, it is teaching things that the Bible cannot 
support or does not support. One commentator called it quarreling about our favorite, here we go, our favorite opinions. We all have them. And we argue them most vehemently. These kind of arguments are useless, lead to the ruin of the hearers. The word for ruin is the word katastrophe uh, in the Greek from which we get our word catastrophe. It speaks of that which is subversive and undermining and, uh, and unsettling and upsetting. Paul is concerned about this quarreling about useless matters. So concerned about it that he calls God um, to witness the command to tell them to cease from it. Tells us that such activity causes catastrophic, upsetting, subversion in the body of Christ. It can ruin relationships and cause people to draw battle lines about things that do not matter. You may want to ask yourself this question. Every time that you feel like arguing, you may ask, is this a moral issue? Does it really matter? Do I have a biblical basis for this particular discussion? Again, entire churches, entire denominations have split over these kinds of things. Let me give you one example. Do you know that, that, that an entire denomination split over where to place the communion table? <laughs> Somebody wanted it right here front and center. Someone wanted it over there on the stage left, the house right. That's where it belongs. That's where it belongs. They split. Don't know if you noticed, we don't even own a communion table. All that brings us to point two. Instead of fighting about words which carry no significance, be diligent in the things that do matter. That is ultimately the word of truth, which, which as, as we concentrate on that can result in us being approved by God. This is what Paul is holding out for Timothy and for us, being approved by God. Be diligent, he says, to present yourself. Yourself is in the emphatic. Warn them about fighting. Encourage them to pursue right things, Timothy. But make sure that you are diligently pursuing them for yourself. I mean, it's one thing to teach and admonish others. It's, it's an altogether different thing to make sure that we are pursuing our own destruction. In other words, practice what you preach. No, no, no greater harm can be done to our children than to, to, to correct them in something that they see in us all the time. Many of you are familiar with this verse. In fact, you probably, uh, some of you, I'm sure, memorized it in the King James, as I did, which says, Study to sow thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, but rightly um, dividing the word of truth. Uh, fine translation. There's actually nothing long, wrong with it, as long as we understand that the word study in 1611 meant to make an earnest effort, to diligently strive to do your best. We reduce that down, the word study, to mean just that, you know, to get out your pen and pen, and paper and to study. Trans the problem with that translation is not the translation or understanding of Old English. Again, we re reduce it to just Bible study. And so the verse has been used to encourage diligent study of the Word of God that we might rightly handle or divide uh, the Word of truth. Uh, that is good. That's great. That's a good understanding. But I'm just going to suggest that it begins there. We, we do our best which includes study, to present ourselves to God in what fashion? Well, he, he identifies three things here. First, uh, the one being diligent is described, notice, as a workman. A workman. 
Paul holds out all of the time this idea that living the Christian life is exhausting, strenuous work. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Shame is a theme that we've seen over and over. Don't be ashamed of, uh, of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, the gospel messenger. And now he says, if you work hard, you will not need to be ashamed before God. It requires hard work to diligently study and apply. I think that's both ideas are in mind here. God's word. But the reward itself is that when we stand before God, we will do so unashamed. The unashamed workman is the one who has no cause for shame when his work is inspected. Said one, when God looks over um, our work, we will not blush. As we work for our Lord, it should be our desire that our work be approved. Again, I understand that, 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 that our work is willed, both willed and empowered by God, but we work nonetheless. We work. Not to produce salvation, but to prove salvation. As we remember, 1 Corinthians 3 says it this way. It says that our work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. You remember the context of that particular passage? That our works will be tested uh, and proven, uh, tested by fire and proven to be either gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw. We will all stand. I want to make you sure you understand this. Yes, we are people of grace. Don't, don't say that I'm not saying that. But please understand that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will not be judged for our sins. Those have already been judged at the cross of Christ. We will not give an account for our sins, but we will be judged and consequently rewarded for our spirit-enabled work. He gives us the will, he gives us the ability to work, and then he rewards us for it. It's a pretty good deal. But work we do. And, and I don't miss, we do our best to present ourselves unashamed to whom? To man? Paul made it clear in his writings, I'm not working to please men. We, we, I, I'm working to please God. We sometimes get that confused. The goal of our efforts is to please remember our commanding officer. There may be times in our service and our striving to be all that God would have us to be that we don't have the approval of others. Have you ever faced, have you ever faced that, even within the church? Paul often did not have the approval of people, even within the church. He was roundly criticized by all, inside, outside the church. But it is not ours to please others. That's not what we're striving. That's not who we're striving to please. It is not before others we will one day stand. Our focus instead is on obeying and pleasing God. Notice, he says, next, we are diligent to be approved. A approved. Now, at this point, it's critically important that we understand what, what he means by this word approved. We are being diligent. We are working hard. We are doing best to present ourselves as ones approved. The word carries with it. Get this, the idea of putting to test for the purpose of approving. Uh, uh, it is once finding a person or thing meets the specifications laid down to put one's stamp of approval on that person or thing. What he is saying is this, be diligent, work hard to present yourself as one's tested and proven by God. I want you to understand God wants to approve us and our work. 
We don't have a father sitting in heaven with a billy club in hand waiting for us to step out of line so he can bean us on the head. That's not the idea here. Rather, we have an expectant father waiting to place his seal of approval on our work. Again, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We don't have a God packing a flamethrower, devouring everything in sight. He wants us to do well. He wants to approve us. He wants our work to stand. In fact, he has taken the steps necessary through the grace of the indwelling and empowering presence of the Spirit of God to complete the work that he has started in us. The word approved is used, for example, of testing metals. When a goldsmith or a silversmith tests a piece of metal, they test it not for the purpose of finding it impure or, or, or not genuine. It's their desire that it be of the highest quality. The same is true here. God wants us to do our best, remembering that our growth is a process with which we cooperate. And when tested, he wants us to be found of highest quality. For Taking that analogy a bit further, when the metal smith um, tests the, the, the ore, he, he applies heat to it. He, he applies heat and, and it becomes molten. And as the impurities float to the top, he skims them away. How does he know? How does he know as that heat is applied and the impurities are skimmed off? How does he know when the metal has become more and more pure, when he can begin to see his own reflection in the ore? That's the idea. God applies the heat working out the impurities so that he can, there can come a day when he can see his own reflection in us and he can stamp approved. Next thing we see, we do our best to be found as ones who hack accurately handle the word of truth. To correctly handle their, me, rightly divide, means to cut straight. Accurately handling is a word from which we get, it's similar to the word from which we get our word orthodoxy. It speaks of straight teaching. Or another example, orthopedics. Comes from two Greek words. Ortho means straight and paideia, children. Orthopedics originally meant to help children go grow straight and strong. Isn't that what we want? We want our children, we're all orthopedes. We all want our children to grow great, uh, straight and strong. You know, most of my commentators here said the word was used of, of, of cutting a straight path. For example, there's only two other times in biblical language where this word is used. One is in the, the, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a verse you all know, uh, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and all you always acknowledge him, and he will what? Make your paths straight. That's the idea. Same word. He'll make your paths straight. Could be that as a tent maker, Paul was referring to cutting the, the cloth straight so that it would match up correctly. We need to do our best to present ourselves to God as one's approved so that we handle the word, which, which clearly means the gospel, so that we handle it straightly, rightly. Well, how, how do we cut straightly? How do we correctly handle the word of truth? Let me give you two very easy ways to do that. First is by cutting it straight in interpretation, making sure that we under, understand rightly and teach rightly um, biblical truth, that we, that we t uh, teach it accurately. Yes, this is what we get from this particular text, and that is true. But secondly, we can cut it straight in application, which means not only do we know what it says, but we are doing what it says. Doing what it says. That means that we handle the word rightly, yes, but it means much more. James said, don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. 
This is rightly handling. This is cutting straight the word of truth. And so, Paul has encouraged Timothy to avoid quarreling about words. He, he has encouraged him to diligently seek to be approved in the word. And now, again, in verses 16 to 18, he can't help himself. Avoid this, this, this worldly and empty words. By avoiding godless words, Paul encourages Timothy and, frankly, us to have nothing to do with profane, empty words, conversation that is totally devoid of God. This is conversation that does not necessarily start out evil. It is just godless, idle, fill the silence chatter. It can result in speculation. Again, that has no biblical warrant. It is, it is, it is not saying anything of value or, or truth. Really, it is just saying nothing. And the problem is that the moral nature of, of man endures no vacuum. And, and, it, and it naturally tends toward evil. Empty words become evil words. They increasingly become more ungodly. It's a very interesting word that Paul uses at the end of verse 16 there. Worldly or empty chatter promotes, and that's actually usually, usually used in a positive sense, but here he says it, it promotes ungodliness. And we need to strike a balance. Paul is not saying that you cannot ask what's for dinner. In Jesus' name. That's, that's not, he doesn't have a problem with sports. Hallelujah. But we must make sure that our conversation is governed by a spirit-controlled life. And the majority of our conversation should not be idle, filling the silence, chatter. Saying something just to say something that is meaningless. I am, I'm, I'm often concerned when you spend more than a few minutes with a fellow believer, maybe an evening out or something like that, and they never seem to be interested in talking about spiritual things. We should concentrate on things that build up. We should concentrate on things that edify. This is what he's saying. Frankly, uh, these are the things that are gold, silver, and, and precious or costly stones which are eternal and to be rewarded. The other things, the, the other things that just fill the air, that are just fill the silence are wood, hay, and straw that will burn. No eternal value. These verses point to the snowball effect. Make sure that you understand what I'm saying here. The snowball effect of empty chatter. Empty or godless chatter will become, he is suggesting, ungodly chatter which then becomes ungodly teaching. He compares it, for example, to gangrene, an eating, spreading sore that eventually leads to death. You either got to cut off the appendage or the person dies. What began as innocent chatter becomes ungodly, begins to spread, killing its hearers. It's why we do what we do in this church. It's why... We are Alliance Bible Fellowship. If you come here, if you come here for any period of time, you know that I am not going to stand up largely. Sometimes I violate this and, and give you opinions. I am not interested in my, I know you're not interested in my opinions. I'm not even interested in my opinions. What I am interested in is the Word of God. This is what has the power to change lives. It's what we focus on. Paul cites as examples Hymenius and Philetus. Hymenius was mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1 with Alexander. 
First Timothy chapter 1, several years before, and, he, and here he is still hanging around. Why has the church not dealt with this heretic? They, they allowed him and his false teaching to remain. And, and, and now Paul's having to deal with it again. When false teaching comes, we must expose it and, when necessary, expel it. These two men had strayed. Notice they were um, likely involved in speculative, empty chatter. And before you knew it, they had walked away from that straight, that orthodox Christian truth. They began teaching specifically that the resurrection had already taken place. Likely meaning that there was, they probably were in that Greek dualism of the day that saw the physical as bad. And so they were saying probably something like that, that the past spiritual resurrection that you enjoyed um, is the only thing that there is. That you were raised uh, to spiritual life, you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and that is it. And by that they were saying that there was no future bodily resurrection. They were denying, uh, by doing so, Christ's bodily resurrection. Tonight, to deny future resurrection was to deny, to, is to deny the Christian faith. Paul dealt with that decisively in 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have the time to go there. I encourage you to, to look at that. Their teaching, as a result, was destroying the faith of some. We must, you see, guard against godless chatter that can lead to erroneous, heretical teaching that can destroy somebody's faith. And immediately you go, wow, this kind of bothers me. What if, I, what if I have caused a believer, by godless chatter, idle speculation, to turn from the faith? Or what if I, what if I believe false teaching? What it, can it cause me to deny the faith? Paul anticipates your concern and concludes with some encouraging words. Verse 19, I'm going to move through this very quickly. Although some have been destroyed, nevertheless... The firm foundation of God stands. The truth of God, which is found in the foundation of the gospel and found in the church of Christ, is solid. It is sealed with a twofold inscription. Both of these quotes come from the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in uh, Numbers chapter 16. You, you, you remember that story. The names are perhaps vaguely familiar. They rebelled against Moses' leadership. And they one day came to Moses and, and Aaron and said, you have gone far enough. You've gone too far. All of the congregation is holy. Why do you exalt yourselves above uh, the assembly? They, they, were, they were frustrated with Moses and his, and his God-ordained leadership. And in the Greek translation of that story, again, the Septuagint, Moses said to Korah and his company of rebellious people, tomorrow, you feel some censors, you come back tomorrow, tomorrow the Lord will show who is his, because the Lord knows who are his. That, that, that's a quote, 16 verse 5. You see, God was getting ready to judge this rebellious people. But the people of Israel, those who did not rebel, were preserved, because the Lord knows those who are his. Then a little bit later, I think it's verse 26 in the chapter, uh, when, when God's judgment comes, he, he's, he's already approved Moses. He's approved Aaron's leadership. He's already identified Korah and his followers as being rebellious people. He, Moses told the people to separate from them because, because God is going to judge them. Separate, he says, from their wickedness. There's the quote. Here's the point. God knows those who are his, and we prove that we belong to him by separating from wickedness. Paul applies this to our lives. He encourages us with these two final thoughts. He gives us first a seal 
of security. Don't miss this. God knows those who are His. The building of His church is on the solid foundation of His promise, and He will not allow uh, His own, He will not allow the elect from a little bit earlier in the chapter, He will not allow them to shipwreck their faith. We must be vigilant, but we need not worry. He knows those who are His. And finally, He gives a seal of purity. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. How do you know that you are His? Having been sealed uh, by His knowledge of you, how, how do you know this? Those who are His of necessity eventually and assuredly turn away from evil and live lives characterized by righteousness. I did not say perfect lives. I said lives that are characterized by a faithful pursuit of God. He knows you. And he knows that you will follow him because he has given you his spirit by, which, by whom you can. The encouragement to us is this. In the midst of a, a, an evangelical church that is filled with false teaching and, and rebellion. In the midst of a culture which is quickly turning from the very straight path that is, that is treating orthodoxy as if we can hold it or, or not, who are ruining the faith and ruining their own lives. The encouragement for us is this, God knows you. He knows those who truly belong to him, and we prove it by being diligent and turning away from wickedness. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture to us, uh, at least verse 15. But it comes sandwiched in uh, between two uh, passages, verses, that, that tell us what not to do, to stay away from idle, meaningless, speculative chatter that has no biblical basis, and to, to instead be people who are diligently committed to the word of truth, thus seeking and finding your approval. And we thank you for the promise that in the midst of all of that, you know us. You know those who are yours. And, and so by your spirit, we will walk faithfully. We will turn from wickedness. We will seek to be people of the gospel, people of truth. We thank you for your enabling grace to do so. In Christ's name.